In episode 21 of Mosin at Large, we'll be talking with Lee Kumutat from the San Francisco Lighthouse about the Holman Prize for Blind Ambition and how you could win $25,000. We'll talk everything ringtones and whether you make your own or even buy your own. And there's lots of tech news in the mix as well. Mosin at Large Podcast. If you want to be in touch, you can drop me an email with an audio attachment or just write something down, jonathan at mushroomfm.com or call the listener line. That number is 864-60-MOSIN in the United States. That's 864-606-6736. Some people consider it the bane of our existence when you're in a public place, even in the workplace. You will hear the sound of cell phones going off with phone calls regularly. And one of the things that's always fascinated me about this is that most people don't even change the default. It's not even like they go and change to one of the ringtones that the manufacturer includes. Many people just don't change the default that the phone ships with in settings. The first cell phone I ever bought was in 1989. It was made by a New Zealand manufacturer called Tate, Tate Electronics. They got into the cell phone business, and I don't remember the ringtone for that at all. But eventually, I migrated to Nokia phones, and I've had various manufacturers, actually, in those early days. I had a Sony Ericsson phone or two, which sounded great. The the little earpieces on those Sony Ericsson phones were really good. I don't remember much about the ringtones for that. And I've had, oh gosh, a Philips Spark was one phone I had that kept breaking. I, I ended up replacing the Philips Spark. Oh, I've had various manufacturers, but... Nokia predominantly before the iPhone came along. I did have a little go with some Windows mobile devices, but predominantly Nokia. And I do remember the ringtones on those Nokia phones. There was a pretty consistent theme. I think they just called it the Nokia tune, and it evolved over the years. The first Nokia phone I ever had went... which is very monophonic and yuck, and they evolved over time. Eventually, you got to things like... And that was pretty nice. Sounds like a shortwave radio interval signal. Not that many people listening to this will even remember shortwave radio, let alone interval signals. But they evolved. They kept getting more powerful. And eventually, we got to the point where the ringtones were sounding pretty snazzy. So by that stage, it had got really, really silly. But then most people had given up on Nokia by then and moved on to iOS or Android. You could, by that stage, of course, use MP3 files and things to create your own ringtones. Nokia had that for quite some time. And it was simple because you could just take an MP3 file, load it onto your phone. I think you had to use that blimmin' awful Nokia PC suite. Do you remember that thing? It created all sorts of trouble. Sometimes it would be 
moderately accessible, and sometimes it wouldn't. As soon as I could, I really enjoyed creating ringtones, and many of the ringtones that I still use go back to those Nokia days. It's a little bit more fiddly creating ringtones for the iPhone because you have to make sure you create M4A files and then rename them to M4R, and they have to be within a certain time limit and all that kind of argy-bargy, but it's still worth doing it because I think that a ringtone, and for that matter, text tones, which iPhone also supports, and I'm sure Android does as well, kind of emits your personality. When somebody hears your phone going off with something unique, people get a sense of your personality. Not to mention the fact that when a whole lot of phones are going off, you know it's yours. And also for a blind person, and for anybody, I guess, you have the added advantage that if you have unique ringtones for the people who call you most, it helps you identify who it is what's calling without having to check the caller ID and Perhaps that can be difficult in a noisy environment. So I thought I'd ask if you create your own ringtones. If you don't create them, do you buy your own ringtones? If you don't do that, do you deviate from the default ringtone at all? Do you go to the trouble of assigning personalized ring and or text tones to different callers? I love doing this. And when I assign a ringtone or a text tone to someone It's a symbol that these people are particularly significant in my life. For example, for Bonnie, I have the William Tell Overture. So it makes quite a racket when she calls. And the reason for that was because when we got together, I knew she was really into horses. And so I thought of the galloping, you know, high ho silver. And so we got the Lone Ranger out of it. And now every time she calls, we get the William Tell Overture. For my kids, for example, for Heidi, I have the Waltz of the Flowers, which I absolutely love from Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker. And that dates back to when she was a little girl and she would do ballet. So that's been her ringtone ever since she had a cell phone to call me with. Richard, his ringtone is really out of date now. (laughs) Uh, Luckily, he doesn't hear his own ringtone because he seldom calls me when he's in earshot of my phone, of course. But he used to love Garfield as a little boy, and I'd read him lots of Garfield stories. So he's got a cat meowing, and Bonnie says the cat sounds very angry. So when Richard calls, it just goes meow, meow. David, again, I've had that one since he was old enough to call me, and his is the opening riff to Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. And that's because at one stage, David took up the guitar and he learned to play Smoke on the Water, but he was a little boy, he's about six or seven, and he thought it was called Smoking on the Water. So he would play Smoking on the Water on his guitar, so he's still got that as his ringtone. And Nicola has Obladi Oblada, because she loves that song, and it's sort of, yeah, she used to sing along and bounce. So I've had those ringtones because I've just stuck with them since the kids were little. I do have other ringtones, for example, when Mark calls, he's playing One Note Samba. And uh, so all sorts of things. And I really like it because it just adds so much kind of sonic color to my mobile phone experience. And so I wonder whether you do the same. Do you ever kind of mix it up a little bit with your cell phone ringtones and text tones? And if you do, maybe there are some stories behind why you have the ringtones that you have. And I'd be really keen to hear those or text tones for that matter. If you don't, is it just because it's too complicated or just because you, you know, it doesn't float your boat? You, you can't be bothered. Be interested to hear your thoughts. Rosalind Large Podcast.
podcast. On the subject of ringtones, Jane Jordan says, I have a MacGyver theme ringtone set up for my dad, and I have one I made of one I created from a Gordon Lightfoot song set up for Eric. That's Jane's husband. Heather, that's her daughter, has her own too. I can't find the right one for my mom. Well, you've got to find just the right one. I've got when I'm 64 for mine. Carolyn Pete is listening in Auckland in New Zealand, and she says she has the entertainer. That's a good one. That's a bouncy wee ringtone. Murray, that's Carolyn's brother, has Doctor Who on his, and Karen who is Carolyn's sister-in-law. Are we all keeping up? Yes, good. She has Scotland the Brave. Hi, that's a woman too, Jimmy. (laughs) Tremendous. Marianne says, I created ringtones for Jack. That's her husband. I'll tell you. I'm glad I'm able to help interpret all of this. But every time the phone used to update to a new iOS, I would lose them. I gave up. That's really annoying. I've had some ringtones that have lurked about since iOS whatever 3, whatever was my first iOS, and I've never lost them. So I wonder what the problem is there. That must be very frustrating for you. Holger says each contact has specific tone. I ask each person what they'd like, and I find it or get it. That's a cool idea. Nice job. Thank you, Olga. Well, that's a really nice idea. So you could actually go to, I mean, I've got so many, I've got about (laughs) hundreds of contacts in my phone. So I don't know if I'd approach them all, but it's quite a cool conversation starter, isn't it? What would you like your ringtone to be? That's an excellent conversation starter. Gino J. Gino J. He says, I create my own ringtones and text tones. My favourite tone I made so far is the beginning of Dig by Mudvayne. It's a guitar riff that has a burr burr ding sound. (laughs) I first heard it because someone made it 10 hours on YouTube and thought it fit me. 10 hours on YouTube. (laughs) Now, I should also add that Anthony, spotty nephew, His ringtone that I have on my phone for him is Pink Floyd's Money, and I don't quite know why. The the um, it has the the little beginning bit, and that's his ringtone, and it's very good in stereo too, of course, with all that cash register sound in stereo. Oh, that's me. They're singing about. I know that every so often on this podcast we do talk. Well, doo-doo. <laughs> we do. We talk doo-doo on the Mosin at Large podcast, and we're about to do it now. Listen to this. Hello, Mr. Mosin. It is Joseph Quinn here. Oh, my goodness. You may be able to hear Princess playing Xbox in the back. I playing the Xbox. Exactly. <laughs> He's playing the Xbox. Uh, in this room, we are in the we are in the bedroom, uh, and he is playing it thanks to the wireless controller capabilities. <laughs> in the other room, we are attempting to potty train this child, and ironically, he's going to daycare on Monday. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Um, and you better watch what you say because he'll say anything. He'll even say soup. Uh, 
Maybe it won't. <laughs> oh, I have to bleep him now. There we go. Yeah. Woo. We'll, we'll bleep you, Prince. That's my phone. Anyway, here. Sit, 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 sit. sit on the pot. Anyway, how do you potty train the child when he asks me, he said, Did you pee? Did you pee, Daddy? After he's done it. <laughs> and I'm like, Ugh. and I was reading that what to expect, uh, what, is, what to expect the toddler years or something like that. And they tell you, you know, that that they'll they'll go into a corner or they'll do facial expressions, which I can't get my. Did you pee? Yeah. No, you didn't pee. Oh. So how do you do it? How do you how do you train a child as blind? parent you really are taxing my knowledge in a couple of respects here joe first i have to confess while i did change nappies that's uh americans call them diapers for whatever reason i didn't do a lot of the potty training mainly because amanda was the one at home at that stage so i have I, i'm not someone who has a lot of practical uh, knowledge of this but i do vaguely remember that you can get potties i think which play music after your little one does the business so it has a sensor in it, and then when there's a little bit of number one or number two in the pot, it plays a little tune. I'm pretty sure that they were around when my kids were potty training, so I can only imagine what they do now. I mean, they probably play in five-part harmony and with a with a big band, and you know the whole the whole works, and and probably do something to kind of reinforce positive behaviour in the child like applause or well done. or I mean, the things you could do these days with little chips and potties is, is just completely amazing to behold, I'm sure. So there's that. I guess the low-tech solution is you just got to go in there and check, mate. Blah, blah, blah. Bringing up kids at that age can be quite... Yeah. So you might just have to go and check yourself. But I'm pretty sure there are those musical potties. I would also say that there are some very good resources out there for blind parents. I remember when I was into this stuff as a young blind parent, Amy Rule ran a very good blind parents email list, and I don't know whether that still exists or not. And I know that the National Federation of the Blind also run some blind parenting resources, and you know, they're, they're very supportive of this. So there might be places that you can go to ask this question. However, if we have any blind parents who were sort of potty trainer-in-chief listening who can give some tips, then by all means be in touch. But, you know, I tend to go for the high-tech solution. Well, other than going and checking manually, man. But I'm pretty sure there are these musical potties. I have a vague recollection of this. Mosin at Large Podcast. Famed musician, Mama, <laughs> Neil Young, has complained about modern music being produced on Apple's MacBook Pro, declaring the audio of the notebook as being Fisher-Price quality and not good enough for high-quality music production and referencing Steve Jobs in Apple producing for consumers, not quality. So he's really got stuck in. Neil Young has been on a crusade for audio quality for quite some time, including at one point championing high-fidelity audio with a product that he made himself. Remember this? It was called the Pono Player and Pono Music Services. 
but the musician has recently turned his ears towards Apple and the MacBook Pro, dismissing its suitability for high-quality music production. When asked about the 16-inch MacBook Pro and artists using GarageBand to get started creating music, Young immediately referred to the notebook as a piece of crap. Are you kidding? That's Fisher-Price quality, he said. That's like Captain Kangaroo, your new engineer. Young goes on about how the audio you can produce from the MacBook Pro is only as good as what is recorded. You can't get it out because the DAC, the Digital Audio Converter, is no good in the Mac Pro. So you have to use an external DAC and do a bunch of stuff to make up for the problems that the MacBook Pro has because they're not aimed at quality. Wow. And, of course, that Pono player and Pono music service died a bit of a death, didn't it? Because a lot of people did some, if I may use the expression, blind testing. And they tested services like Deezer or Tidal, some of these ones that now offer high-resolution music against the Pono player, and nobody could hear a difference. And everybody said, well, why do we have to buy a proprietary player when the things that we've got seem to be doing just as well? So that thing went bust. But um, Neil Young has had this thing going on about digital music for a long time. one 864 is the number if you want to be in touch. one 864 Well, hiya, kids. And hiya, Jonathan. Well, hey, I'm not a kid. Yeah. Paul Miliarelli in Hi, Boulder, Paul. Colorado. I couldn't help but uh, comment on your story regarding your hearing aid ex- escapade and the situation with uh, the molds and the tubing. You know, for years, I often never thought about this. And there came a point in recent times that I did make darn sure that I thought about it in various contexts being hearing aids over the many years and the context of implants and hardware and the physicality of of things. For the longest time, with any equipment I had, I only had one set of anything. Uh, be it hardware, be it uh, molds and tubing situations. I had what I had on hand. I don't know how I ever, ever, ever got away with that because I know exactly what you were referring to in terms of the possibility of the mold and the tubing coming apart and getting physically incapacitated with that Over time, I realized a simple solution on the surface, which was and is, you know what you really want to do? What do I want to do? You know, much as the cost or whatever to have molds made up, have several sets made up of molds. Um, Keep them in something on hand. I ended up, before implants, uh, and in the end stages of hearing aids, I ended up with three or four sets of molds on hand because I realized 
just what you described and what could happen. You keep several sets of molds and tubing on hand if you can, and you you check them. You inventory them every couple months or so. Check the integri- integrity of what you have for backups. Same with uh, the hardware. If at all possible, you could obtain, maybe you have. I like carrying a complete turnkey system with me and a little utility belt. I carry my whole kit with me. Same with implants. I feel I need to be able to swap out if there's a if there is a horror and there is a hardware difficulty i need to be able to swap out in my mind in less than 30 seconds thanks paul it's a very good point that you make especially for blind people who have a significant hearing impairment i do this to some degree and you're right i need to think about it some more certainly one spare set of molds wouldn't go amiss i do keep my previous hearing aids on hand because i always worry about the prospects of my current hearing aid just malfunctioning or one malfunctioning for some reason. And when you're in a situation where you've got to navigate or you've got to chair meetings or whatever, that is a really serious thing. So I do have my great technology backpack of doom that I carry with me and it's got all sorts of stuff and people pick it up and they go, yeah, dude, what do you, what do you got in there? This thing is heavy. Yeah. But it's got all sorts of little bits of technology and it has rescued many a people, many a person, not just me. It's kind of like the equivalent of women's purses, which are a thing of wonder. I mean, it just never ceases to amaze me what comes out of those. So my technology backpack of doom is a bit like that. So I do have the previous hearing aids there. And you're right, I should probably get... An extra set of molds made up. I have ordered some additional tubing to avoid that awful situation that lasted a whole weekend. So thank you for the tip, Paul. I certainly appreciate that. Marianne Mendes is back in touch regarding blind parenting. And she says the website dedicated to NFB blind parents is, and it's a very sensible domain, blindparents.org. That's blindparents.org. So we will put a link to that in the show notes of the podcast. And she adds that Joe's son sounds absolutely, completely and totally adorable. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Soon we are going to be talking to Lee Kumutat. Lee is the newly minted director of communications at the San Francisco Lighthouse. She has been in the UK working with the Beeb for quite some time. But now she's gone across the Atlantic to San Francisco, and we're going to be talking about the Holman Prize for Blind Ambition, where you could earn up to $25,000. Pretty impressive. And when I mentioned that we were going to be talking to Lee, we got some emails. I shall read a couple of them. For example, here's one from Kathy Blackburn in Austin, Texas. She says, does anyone follow up? a year or more after winners are announced, to see how the proposed projects are going? Yes. And in fact, I think you'll hear in the interview that we do with Lee that there is very close contact that the San Francisco Lighthouse maintains with the winners of the Holman Prize. They are mentored and uh, they, they work through the process. So it seems to be a very robust process and there's accountability there for how the money is spent. 
Brian Gaff also says, uh, I and uh, quite a few uh, other UK folks know Lee from her work at the BBC, both on In Touch and uh, some on the World Service. However, she hails from your hemisphere, as you no doubt know. That's right. She's from Australia originally. I was saddened to hear when she left and hope the move to the States was not too traumatic. Brian says, I have a question, though. Why are these blindness organizations called lighthouses? To us here in the UK, a lighthouse is a tower with a light beam which rotates to warn mariners of rocks, etc. I don't know why they're called lighthouses. I don't know where that started. It's a very good question, and perhaps somebody in the United States who knows about the history of lighthouses and the name lighthouse might know. I do find it interesting and somewhat disconcerting how often blindness agencies use terms relating to vision or whatever, or light or whatever, when they actually are serving blind people. The most egregious example of this is Australia, where they have an organization for blind people called Vision Australia, which were I in Australia, I would find deeply, deeply offensive. And I feel the same way about vision teachers, by the way, which is a term that crept in. And uh, when I was the chairman of the board of the blindness agency here, I really did campaign to stamp that out. A blind person does not need a vision teacher. They need a teacher of blind children. What's actually wrong with the word blind? Why are so many people ashamed of it? But I don't know about the history of the lighthouse thing, Brian. Maybe somebody can fill us in or have the opportunity to look it up on the wiki. Also, continues Brian, I find it interesting that they can offer such a prize and wonder where the money comes from and whether there is the argument we get here when large prizes are mooted, i.e. that the money should be spent on services, not giving one person a prize, no matter how worthy they are. Well, the San Francisco Lighthouse got left a massive, a huge bequest. I mean, I mean huge. I think it was over $100 million, and somebody can correct me if I have that figure wrong. It was a very large bequest. Can you imagine being the chief executive of an entity like that and being told one day, oh, um, you've got a note here saying you've just been left $100 million? I mean, absolutely extraordinary, really. So a $25,000 prize, even if you give it to a couple of people, ain't going to break the bank. It isn't even going to exhaust the interest on that bequest. And I think it's a really cool idea. At Large Podcast. Jane Jordan, regarding the subject of lighthouses, says, I always figured it was sighted people trying to appeal to other sighted people about us. You know, being a shining beacon to give help for us blind people. I really don't know about the history there. So interesting speculation there, Jane. I did see something very funny on social media the other day that I wanted to tell you about to give you a bit of context for those who are not into the Beatles history. I have to explain that just as the Beatles were making it big, they just signed a contract. They went into their first recording session. Things were finally happening after it really was thought that nothing would happen. They just about exhausted all their options. And George Martin, the Beatles producer, was not happy 
with the Beatles drummer, whose name was Pete Best. And they weren't happy with him either for various reasons, so they fired him. It was extremely controversial in Liverpool. So just as the Beatles were making it big, Pete Best was out. Fired by the manager. None of the Beatles ever spoke to him again. So with that background, the the Beatles' official Twitter account sent out a tweet. And, you know, the, the Twitter accounts do this. Social media peeps do this. They send out a little conversation starter. And the conversation starter in this case was, who or what got you into the Beatles? Fair enough. And most people talked about maybe their parents used to listen to them and they were captivated and all these sort of older people said, I remember seeing them in the Ed Sullivan show or whatever it was, the usual stuff that the Beatles were expecting. And then there was a tweet and it came from none other than Pete Best. And he said, Paul got me into the Beatles. He phoned me up and asked me to join. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. It's wonderful when a social media cam- campaign can be derailed in that way. Well, on the tech front, there are new Apple Beatles that have been released. These are fairly significant. So we've gone from the 13.3 number all the way up a notch sound like Casey Kasem, to um, 13.4 in the case of iOS. There's also a new watchOS and tvOS and macOS. So these are all in beta now. If you belong to the Apple beta program, I think they're in public beta now. I'm on the developer beta seed, and they certainly are available that way. What's new? Well, it is now possible for developers to charge once for apps that run on Mac and iOS. This is a technology called Catalyst. And you may remember that there was quite a bit of controversy when it turned out that if you made a Catalyst app as a developer, you had to charge separately for the Mac version and the iOS version, even though it was actually the same app. Well, there was a bit of a hue and cry about this. And Apple has now relented, changed course, and now you can, as a developer, just charge for the one app and give people the Mac and iOS and iPad OS version. The next thing that's back is back. This one was around. It was promised at WWDC last year. It was in the early betas of iOS 13, and then there were all sorts of problems, and they took it away because Lord only knows iOS 13 was unstable enough as it is, but now they feel they can bring it back. This is the iCloud folder sharing. This is similar to what you get in services like Dropbox, where you can share a folder with a bunch of people and put files in there and everybody gets them. So it's something that a lot of cloud services have had for a while. Apple is now catching up and the iCloud drive folder sharing is back. In-app purchases are coming to the Apple Watch with this watchOS 6.2 that is going to be coming out shortly. And that's going to be interesting. They really are trying to ramp up the watchOS app store and make the Apple Watch ecosystem much more self-contained than it was previously. I think they will try and eventually get to the point where you can run an Apple Watch completely separate from having an iPhone. So now you will be able to buy a watch app and do in-app purchases for the Apple Watch. Does the horrible notifications bug persist? Yes, it does. This is that thing where you get a notification and every so often, without seeming rhyme or reason, it just repeats over and over until you manually dismiss 
the notification. At this point, that one has not been resolved. I did have a bug for quite some time where sometimes you would open an app and you double tap to activate elements in an app and you couldn't. And the only way to fix it was to exit the app and go back in. That one does seem to have been fixed. So that is good. Now, there is a new accessibility feature coming in iOS 13.4. For my use case, at least, it is very welcome indeed. And I think this may apply to quite a few blind people, actually, because we don't need to see the screen. This is one of the reasons also why Face ID is a bit of a downer for so many blind people, because a lot of us used to just carry the phone around in our pocket, unlock it, unlock it in your pocket with Touch ID. Yeah, we should get Tim Cook wrapping that. Unlock it in your pocket with Touch ID. It's my beautiful thing ever. Unlock it in your pocket. Well, of course, that's a real minority use case. So it's not surprising that that wasn't given much consideration when Face ID came along. One other thing, of course, is that traditionally, if you lie your phone face down or you put your phone in your pocket, it deactivates the H-E-Y Siri feature. And I find that a nuisance because, for example, I have a really cool app. I've been meaning to mention this app for a while, actually called Waterminder. If you don't measure it, you can't improve it. That's what I tell lots of people. Um, So this Waterminder app, it integrates with your health app. It's fully accessible and it has Siri shortcuts. So I go to the kitchen sink with our little water purifier thingy and I drink my water and I say to the Siri machine, I say log 500 milliliters of water and it won't listen to me because the phone is in my pocket. And it's got the sensor that stops it from working when the phone is in your pocket. I guess the logic being you're not looking at your phone. So why would you be talking to Siri? And this is a nuisance. It makes the whole H-E-Y Siri thing far less useful than it otherwise would be. Well, now in iOS 13.4, you can go into accessibility settings and there is a bunch of Siri settings under accessibility. And a new one that's in there now is basically to allow the H-E-Y Siri at any time, whether the phone's in your pocket, face down or not. And since I've got iOS 13.4 and I switched this on, it is so much more useful to just be able to use that function when the phone's in your pocket. I'm using it a lot more. It's actually called Always Listen for H-E-Y Siri. So if you have the 13.4, you should check that out. It's a very good feature. Hi, Jonathan. It's May Thompson here. Hello, May Thompson here. Had a good week. Yeah. Well, I had a bit of a scary situation on Tuesday regarding my iPhone SE. I got up as usual to go to the swimming pool and I could not get voiceover to work at all. Tried to switch it on, switch it off, power the phone off, power the phone back on. Reset it by pressing the power button and the home button. That didn't work either. And I knew the volume of the phone was as loud as it could be and I just could not get voiceover to work. Not at all. Tried phoning somebody using Siri because I thought it might come back on after I phoned the person, but no, it didn't come back on. So I had to go to the swimming pool and then I tried to get Ray to, you know, to see if he could fix it when I got home. But no, it still wasn't fixed. So I had to phone Apple support, explain the situation to them. 
The guy was from Ireland, he was very nice, and he did a diagnostics thing first, and he said, no, there's nothing wrong with your hardware. Oh, he did, uh, he said, you know, would I be able to do the screen sharing thing? And I had to give the phone to Ray, because obviously I just couldn't work it at all, because voiceover wasn't working. So he got Ray to go into settings. Ray just had to tap on the things. I mean, the guy was using the screen and Ray was just having to tap on, you know, he was telling Ray to go back and forward and Ray just did what he said. And he went into settings and went into privacy and went into, I think it was restore all settings. And I said, are you sure I won't lose my data? And he said, no, no, you won't. He said, you'll have to put your Apple Pay back on and you'll have to reset your Wi-Fi. And there's one or two other things I've had to do, really. You know, I've had to reset my ringtone and things like that. But as soon as he'd done restore all settings, the voiceover came back on and I said, oh, it's working I said oh I said his name was um, Brendan I said oh Brendan I said you've been really helpful I said oh thank you very much I was just so happy that he'd managed to get it working and I probably went over the top but that's me if I'm happy about something I, I go over the top I said oh I'm really happy I'm really happy so he said, oh, he said, I was glad I was able to help you. And I'm wondering um, if anybody else has this problem with their Apple Watch. I can be using it and then suddenly it goes on to silent mode. Um, you feel the vibration on your wrist, but you don't hear the sound. And I like to hear the sound. And I've never put it on silent mode. It just goes on there. And then you can put it back and it'll be all right for a few days. There's it seems kind of random and then another time it'll just go into silent mode and then I've got to put it off silent mode again. I don't know whether it's anything that I can get Apple support to help me with but it's just a more of an annoying thing. It is very frustrating when voiceover stops talking like that. I did go through as I think did many people a period where this was happening quite a bit but knock on the wood I haven't had it happen to me for quite some time, but I'm with you for two reasons in terms of being just so relieved and warmly thanking the technician. The first is I think it must be a thankless task because you do get people who phone up and they're just irritable. And to some degree, I understand that if technology they depend upon is playing up. You can understand why they're a little bit irritated, but it's not the fault of the person who's at the other end of the phone. And we should always try and remember that. So I'm sure it's a thankless task answering all these questions all day. And the second is, you know, it's never, there's nothing wrong with being grateful to someone, is there? And, and thanking them. And it just makes their day. So good on you for doing that. I don't have any suggestions regarding your watch going into silent mode. I have not experienced that. I have my watch pinging as well. I quite like the pings. And the only time it goes silent on me is when it completely goes silent because I've put the watch in do not disturb. Your phone is possessed. Possessed. That's what it is, mate. Here is Roger Peterson. We haven't heard from you for a wee while, Roger. I hope all was going well with you. He says, I have always maintained that if an agency for the blind is a lighthouse, then an agency for the deaf should be a foghorn. <laughs> oh, thank you, Roger. Here's Petra. She's emailing in on the subject of ringtones. Good morning, Jonathan. And listeners, she says, I'm not very technological, but I have ringtones for some of my favorite people. 
Some I bought, and others came with the phone. My sister lives by a lake, and her ringtone is a duck. Oh, that's cute. My daughter's is a motorcycle, and my grandson is American Kids by Kenny Chesney. At Christmas, I have Feliz Navidad. Charlie Crawford is back. Why lighthouses? He says, I suspect it is because they show the way for ships to go to particular places. Kind of fits the common thinking that we blind people are lost and need to find our way. Hi to all and take care. Gosh, I guess that there's a general feeling uh, that the name Lighthouse is not the best name. Let that not detract, though, from the awesomeness that is the Holman Prize, which I personally think is a fantastic initiative, and we'll talk about it with Lee very shortly. And here's Kathy Blackburn. She says, I was just trying to remember when I started buying ringtones. My first cell phone was inaccessible. My second was a Nokia, and I think I was able to assign different ringtones to specific contacts. It would have to be when I got the Pantec Duo that I started buying ringtones. The default ringtone on my iPhone 8 is a parody of the theme from the Big Bang Theory. Audley's ringtone is Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Sympathy. And also, of course, it's the European National Anthem. I have a few tones, says Kathy, assigned to particular friends. Here's Keith. Here's the party dog himself. Dude, he's, he's emailing in. He says, I had a wonderful experience with the Lighthouse for the Blind. I was a client back in 1987 before computers and phones spoke to you. I was an unemployed musician, and didn't know what to do with myself. Through counselling, testing, and encouragement from the Lighthouse, I was able to open an entertainment company which has become one of the busiest in South Florida. Not sure what they intended when naming it, but as far as I'm concerned, it was a godsend, as well as a guiding light. They got me through some very tough times good on you keith and certainly having been involved in blindness rehabilitation myself that really is what it's all about isn't it making that kind of difference at Large Podcast. applications are now open for this year's holman prize where blind people from around the world have a chance to win up to twenty five thousand dollars to explore and the term explore is used very broadly to tell us about the prize, what it might be awarded for, and how you can apply, I'm joined by Lee Kumutat, who has just joined the San Francisco Lighthouse's communications director. Hello, Lee. Hi, Jonathan. So, um, yeah, be very gentle with me, won't you? I, I will, absolutely. You have really got around. I mean, you're Australian, and you've been in the UK for a very long time. How long were you in the UK for? Almost 12 years. Yeah. Um, so I spent 10 years in London. Uh, and then I was working um, as freelance with the BBC and then they gave me a real job and they said that's all very good but you need to move to Manchester to take it uh, and so I moved to Manchester for a year and Manchester and I did not see eye to eye let's just say that um, oh dear. and then I got headhunted Jonathan 
It's always a nice feeling when that happens, isn't it? It's a well. I don't know how many times it's happened to you. It was my first time, right. uh, and it's very difficult to say no, really, isn't it? When when people kind of make you feel like you're appreciated and you're really wanted, and um, and so it was a big move to contemplate um, leaving the UK, where it was really beginning to feel like my home, um, and take up this new opportunity. But I'm four weeks in and four days and I'm enjoying it. <laughs> and it's always one of those moments you never forget where you were when you got that initial contact, whatever form it took, where somebody just, you know, you're doing your thing and out of the blue, something drops on you that you know could have the potential to change your world. Absolutely. And it was one of those things too where you read about an organisation and you hear about an organisation and Lighthouse for the Blind has had a very interesting history and you hear about the programs that people are trying to start and you think, you know, that can't be all true. You know, it sounds mm. too good to be true. So I was very careful and did a lot of research even before I decided to apply because just between you and me, Jonathan, I have always been a little suspicious of blindness agencies right. and working for them. Um, I'm very suspicious that, you know, what it says on the tin is actually what's inside the tin. And so it was something I never, ever thought I would do. So I did my research and I talked to people and I've, you know, very, you know, found ex-board members and chatted to them, talked about the internal structures and, and, um, and thought, oh, why not? Let's give it a go. And yeah, and here I am like six months later, um, go, having gone through the immigration process and having, I mean, all of the paperwork, as you will know, uh, mm. trying to get all of that stuff done. It's absolute hell. And let me just say, US immigration, totally inaccessible in terms of trying to <laughs> apply for your appointment just to visit them. Honestly. Anyway. Yes. Yeah, it's a process. It's so a welcome, process. welcome to the role. And Thanks. before we talk specifically about the prize, tell me a bit about James Holman, because until fairly recently, when the Holman Prize actually became a thing, uh, he was one of the largely forgotten blind heroes. I had not heard of him until the Holman Prize caused me to seek out information about him. He was a remarkable man. He was a remarkable man. Um, and it is history that, you know, people aren't aware of and, and that does seem to be lost. But he was around in the 19th century, I believe, from memory. And he basically just travelled around as a blind person and wrote about it and just, you know, kept logs of, of everything he did. So he is one of the kind of blindness community's intrepid kind of historian explorers and a very interesting subject. You can imagine him in the 21st century going around and doing these amazing YouTube travel logs of you <laughs> everything can. that he was doing. Yeah, you can. Um, and perhaps some naysayers would say, well, you know, these these blind people, they just always have to be achieving, honestly, you know. But, <laughs> but James, James, I don't know, James wasn't doing it for, for anyone really except himself and, and just recording what, what he could do. And I think that's quite interesting. You know, there was no social media, as you as you put it. So who was going to be reading this stuff? Yes, and he wasn't actually that well. He did a lot of traveling for the good of his health. He had connections. He had connections. And I think he was actually given residency at Windsor Castle. But he chose to do some traveling instead. And some people were very skeptical about this. And they tried to 
confine him to barracks, essentially, and say, you know, you're a blind guy, you're not particularly well, you shouldn't be traveling. For your own good. Queen Victoria's physician who intervened and said, no, this man needs to roam. It's it's what he does. It's for the good of his health. Mm. For your own good, we'll lock you up, hey? (laughs) (laughs) So that takes us to the Holman Prize, after whom James Holman is named. This has a very broad remit. So for those who aren't familiar with the Holman Prize, what's it for? And what are you looking for in terms of applicants and, and, and the content of the applications? Well, it's called the Prize for Blind Ambition. And the use of the word blind there is very deliberate. It's about, obviously, people who are blind, but it's about this a dream that you have that you just are absolutely determined to make come true. You know, so nothing will stop you and maybe it is only the, the backing or the money that might stop you from trying to do something. And it's about putting together, so the, the application process is you put together a pitch of it doesn't have to be very long it's like 250 words but what we do ask people to do is a 90 second video of your pitch and that serves a number of purposes it gives us an idea of who you are I mean video I think is a medium that really works for blind and sighted people and one of the interesting things about working at Lighthouse is that at the moment we're about 48 percent blind employees versus the other 52 who are sighted so we're kind of all looking at this stuff and and it's just something it is a medium that bridges that gap and so people say well why are you getting you know blind people to make essentially a video which is for sighted people but it's not that at all and it's about pitching your idea and saying I want to do this and I have a personal reason why I want to do it and what I hope to achieve but these, this is also what I want to kind of do what James Holman did and broadcast it in some unique way to blind people themselves. So whether that's going to then give them more ideas about what they can do, break down barriers for them or raise expectations. So it has a number of different purposes. To help understand what floats the boat of the Holman Prize judges. Can we talk about some of the successful uh, prize winners, the the awardees in the past? So it's not surprising that a lot of them do involve exploration and travel. I mean, it is what James Holman did, but it is also something that, you know, we as blind people, many of us still do struggle with, not necessarily because of the daily kind of challenges to it but because of you know the thing that people don't think we can do it or we should be doing it so um mona minkara she won in 2019 and she is a woman after my own heart actually who just absolutely loves public transport or Mm. transit or transportation as i'm learning to call it um (laughs) (laughs) trying to (laughs) trying to get across all the nuances anyway so she tells a story on her video and actually there are a couple of uh, longer videos of her on the Lighthouse for the Blind San Francisco um, YouTube channel and what she she said is I remember getting on my first train and just understanding that for me that was going to be freedom 
And I think that's really powerful. So what she, what her pitch was to travel to, I think it's three or four different countries and pick some big cities in there and travel their transportation system independently and document that. So she is in a way kind of walking in the footsteps of James Holman, but doing it in a modern way. And so that, that was the thing, one, you know, one thing that floated the judge's boat. But she was also very effective about pitching and she's, you know, incredibly personable and, and interesting and, and lovely to listen to. Then we've got Yuma Duco, who is from Australia, my home country. Yay. But he's a Queenslander, but we won't talk about that. Oh, well, oh you know, we'll just we'll just right. quickly pass that yeah. one by. Mm-hmm. And um, what he is doing, he is um, making an, an app that is going to make it easier for blind people to identify exoplanets. Now. In my four and a bit weeks here, Jonathan, I still haven't quite got to the bottom of what an exoplanet is. Um, but that is, that is, is his aim. And within that process, he's traveling to a number of countries, meeting a number of scientists, putting together podcasts, also going to visit a blind school in Iraq to try and to get them interested in science, um, and astronomy as well. So, I think it's it's um very clear that well for a lot of blind people science is something that they don't think they can do but there are a number of blindists as I'm starting to call them um around who who you know love this stuff so that's that's um what Yuma's up to and then Alu from the Gambia he decided that what he wanted to do was to set up a mentoring program for blind people there so he but he was looking at layers so he wanted to find a hundred blind mentors who could mentor another hundred blind people and he's well on the way to doing that as well so and he's documenting that and and videoing it and all of these things are up on on the youtube channel of the lighthouse so do go and check them out if you've got a burgeoning idea and you just think well you know i'm not sure if my idea is going to work the other thing people can do if you've got an idea and you think i'm not sure if it's going to cut it send us an email contact us you can contact us at info at lighthouse-sf.org or holman prize at lighthouse-sf.org and just ask the question and we're very happy to talk to people about that um if you are thinking about applying and would just like to speak to one of our successful um, award winners, then Mona, who I was just talking about, has agreed very kindly to do a Facebook Live um, for us. I think that's on February 20th off the top of my head. I'll find that out for you, Jonathan, and we can pop it in the in the show notes. And Lovely. people can then talk to her and ask her questions and, you know, ask all the nitty-gritty stuff like how supportive were they, you know, what do you have to do, what was the judging like? So there are ways of, of finding out how this works. And you, And at the end of the day, What's the worst that can happen? You know, you, you write a pitch, you, it doesn't get through, but maybe you've made a contact or several. And the best that can happen is that you win 25,000 US dollars to put towards a really interesting project. 
And one of the things I really do appreciate about this prize and the way it's structured is so often you read the fine print and it says that the prize is only available to residents of the United States and its territories and all that kind of stuff. So people are able to apply from anywhere in the world for this prize. Anywhere in the world. And we will help find ways of people, say, for example, if you live in a country like China that doesn't allow the use of YouTube, um, because we're asking people to post their pictures on YouTube and send us a link, then we are finding ways around those kinds of things as well. So we will do whatever we can to help people apply. If you get past that YouTube phase and people are interested in taking it a little further, what happens next for applicants? There is semi or semi finalists and then there are, there is the finalists. So there is a number of Holman judges who are um, appointed externally. But first of all, the lucky staff get to vet and sift through and come up with a number, I'm not quite sure what that number is, of entries that they then put to the external judges. And I think there's about 15 judges all up and they all come together for a weekend and debate and basically have it out as to who the winners should be. How long do people have to apply? When do applications close? Applications are open until the 15th of March. So you've got a little while still, um, sort of a month or so. And, um, you know, we see that applications do ramp up um, in that in that time. So please do get your applications in. So that sounds very exciting and all the best with the new role in San Francisco. It's always a challenge getting to grips with a new job, let alone a new country and culture. So it'll be a busy time for you. It is a busy time for me, but I'm I'm enjoying it. It obviously does have its ups and downs, but at the moment it's it's all going very well. And thank you very much for your good wishes. Jonathan, happy belated New wow. Zealand New Year. Oh, thank Thomas you. Thomas Solich from Ohio. Hello, I Thomas. I really appreciate that you continue to choose to spend your uh, recreational time helping all of us to stay on top of what's happening in uh, technology and the blindness community at large and some also some other really tantalizing topics. So very grateful to you and to Bonnie. Thank you. And my question for today is pertaining to Google Sheets. Um, Normally, 11 months out of the year, our organization uses Microsoft Excel, and it's so lovely, and you can sit there with JAWS on your uh, Windows 10 machine, and you've got all these wonderful shortcuts, and it's so user-friendly and easy to move sheets, insert, delete rows, insert, delete columns, move people around, um, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, we have an esteemed colleague that insists on a project we do in March that we um, use Google Sheets. And although VFO, Freedom Scientific, and all those guys have been doing some really great recent training on uh, accessibility with Google Sheets and how to become more user-friendly with it over time, I still just find that when I'm in a spreadsheet and I'm trying to organize five sheets with 120 uh, uh, you know, cells in each sheet, and I'm answering phone calls and trying to fit people into appointment slots, um, that it just, it, it's not as snappy. Sometimes cells don't read and things like that. Just wanted to see, um, do you all feel the same way about that? Maybe there's something I'm missing. Um, what uh, environment do you prefer to use your Google Sheets in when you have to use Sheets instead of Excel? Do you prefer Windows with um, the new Edge or um the uh, Google browser, or 
Maybe you prefer um, Mozilla, or maybe you prefer to use it in the app environment on the iPhone for accessibility and connect the Bluetooth keyboard. At any rate, very curious to know um, what the thoughts are so that I can um, become more proficient with uh, navigating Google Sheets uh, in a very dexterous way uh, getting ready for March. Or, Jonathan, I've also heard you mention in passing that you and your organization use mostly Microsoft Excel with live collaboration. Um, what did you have to do to get all that set up? And can you give me some ammo for convincing our colleague to just scrap the Google Sheets this March and let's use the latest Excel and we can all still see what's happening at the same time, because that's his biggest need to use Google Sheets, is he simply wants to make sure that, that people can see when each other are editing the document. And we can't do that with Dropbox and Excel. So either some ammo to get him on Microsoft Live Collaboration, or some strategies and uh, which devices and what's, um, how you guys feel you like to use the Google Sheets environment would be most appreciated. Thanks again for what you do, Jonathan, and cannot wait to see what 2020, uh, this final year of the decade, Woo! has for Mosin <laughs> Explosion and Mosin at Large. Keep up the great work, my friend. Thank you very much, Thomas. I appreciate that. You raise a really good question. When I was working for Ira, we used Google there, uh, the whole Google ecosystem, and I suspect they still do, although I don't know for sure. And so I was very much catapulted, somewhat kicking and screaming, into the Google ecosystem. So we used Docs, we used Sheets, that whole Google Office suite. And I have to say, I hated it. I hated every minute of that. And I don't know whether that's because it's just that the Microsoft Office suite, which I've been using since the 90s, is now so ingrained in my brain, so intuitive, that I was just naturally rebelling against something new. But I don't think so. I did take a lot of time to study the shortcuts. I found some really sort of bizarre things would go on, like even if you weren't using a Braille display, JAWS would behave better if you turned Braille mode on and various things like that. For a situation like this, now that I don't work for anybody in the industry, I, I would try another screen reader as well, just to check if you get a better experience. So NVDA is free, no harm in trying it, and just see if they've cracked the experience a little better in the Google ecosystem. But there are plenty of shortcuts. But you're right, I just found the whole experience quite sluggish and unwieldy. One of the things I think Google has always struggled with when it comes to accessibility and user interfaces is just the intuitiveness of it, the commands. You know, there are quite a few multi-layered commands in the Google ecosystem, which I did really find quite difficult to memorize. It was really good, certainly in docs, where I spent most of my time, although I did work with quite a few sheets as well, but predominantly I was writing docs. And eventually, you know, I was working with the Vespero people on this, and they introduced navigation quick keys which aren't as comprehensive as they are in word in the office suite but they have introduced some navigation quick keys and that happened while i was still at ira 
And I really did benefit from that a lot, just having that familiar experience. In terms of what we do, we are very steeped at the organization I'm now chief executive of, WorkBridge. We're very steeped in the Microsoft ecosystem. We are all into Microsoft 365. We use Microsoft Teams and SharePoint, and I think it's all being logged in to that same Microsoft ecosystem with our respective accounts that makes the collaboration possible. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes that I no longer have to worry about. But when you have the document open and it's, say, uh, available on Teams, then everybody else has the document open and the collaboration is just instant. So I don't believe that that kind of collaboration is possible just with Dropbox, but it certainly is possible and pretty responsive and pretty slick in Microsoft Teams and and I think SharePoint as well. Hey, Jonathan, Nick Zamorelli here. Hey, what a morning. great topic. Uh, I got my first cell phone in 1996 from Radio Shack for one penny. U.S. dollars. And of course, I did nothing with ringtones back then because I couldn't. It wasn't accessible. But it was still cool having a cell phone. My goodness. When I started dealing with ringtones, honestly, I don't even remember when that was. But back in the day, in the late 90s and early 2000s, whenever you would read a cell phone review, there were a certain number of monophonic and a certain number of polyphonic ringtones. And the cell phone review would always make it a point of listing those, you know, in terms of however many monophonic or polyphonic ringtones there were, which which was kind of interesting. And of course, polyphonic ringtones. My goodness, what a great selling point that was back in the day. What I do with ringtones now is, and so many people are more creative than this, I, I have never created a ringtone. I just use what's on the phone but I've had so many different cell phones in the past. I still have a few of the old relics, and I've actually saved some ringtones from them. And to this day, I still use some of them. There are seven or eight people to whom ringtones are assigned. And they're always the same ringtones because I saved, I have saved them on my PC. And when I get a new phone or when I do a factory data reset, on the phone that I'm currently using, I always go back in and assign those same ringtones to those same people. So my wife has a ringtone called Elegant Ringtone. My stepdaughter has one called Drifting Downstream. My cousin and I are both big Star Trek fans, so his ringtone is the Star Trek theme. I have an old ringtone from an LG phone called Sound 7, which is a nice little Latin thing uh, that I use for really a dear friend who used to be a former student who back in her elementary school days was in my chorus and now is the assistant director of my elementary school chorus. She has a ringtone. And then two or three other friends have assigned ringtones and that's how I do it. And I save those ringtones um, and I just copy them over from phone to phone. When I had the iPhone SE as my daily driver for a couple of months back in 2017. I had a whale of time getting those same ringtones onto my iPhone. And I did what you suggested earlier. I went for the M4A thing, tried to convert to M4R, couldn't do it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just not smart enough, but I, I just couldn't make that happen. And that was one of the reasons why I 
went back to uh, Android uh, fairly quickly. You've given me a good idea, Nick. I'd like to take some of those old ringtones from my old Nokia phones and put them in. It would be great if I made my default ringtone. I didn't mention what my default ringtone is. It's the uh, tr- the piccolo trumpet solo from Penny Lane. That's my default ringtone. But maybe I should make it that original monophonic ringtone from Nokia. What a cool ringtone that would be. Hello, Jonathan. This is Peggy Kern. I thought I would respond to the thing about the ringtones. I remember a story as far as the Nokia ringtone that somebody was at a symphony orchestra performance somewhere. I I can't remember all the details, but it was on the news. And the person didn't didn't turn off their cell phone and right in the middle of a silent part the cell phone started playing the the little nokia ring you know they got a phone call and it kept going and going and going and pretty soon the the director started playing the you know <laughs> the little nokia ring theme <laughs> I just went on and on and on, and uh, so I thought that was kind of funny. As far as ringtones, I've never created a, a ringtone, have no idea how. I've never purchased one, but I have changed uh, ringtones. My custom ringtone is, I think it's called By the Seaside. It's one of the choices on the phone, so that's mine because I like it better than a lot of the other ones that I've heard. Dan's, I think, is called Aurora, A-U-R-O-R-A. And then our daughter, I have her coming in as a train, a train whistle. That beside the seaside ringtone is a variation of an old, old song, and I think it dates back to the music hall era. And so they've just modified it enough. I'm not sure why they bother modifying it because i'm pretty sure it would be out of copyright by now but you know the original one was about i do like to be beside the seaside i do like to be beside the sea um i imagine johnny ives might have been responsible for uh putting that one in as a as an englishman but there that's that's where that one comes from And now it's that fun time again when we're with Bonnie Muzzin. Hello, everybody. Welcome to you. Hey, good to be here. Lots to talk about. Yeah. Shall we start with the argy-bargy over Radio New Zealand concert? Yeah. This is very, very interesting. In New Zealand, I have to say, compared with, say, Britain or Australia or Canada, many other Commonwealth countries with which we like to compare ourselves. Public broadcasting in this country is an underfunded backwater. And the other day, we don't even have digital audio broadcasting here, and that's one of the big problems. I mean, in places like Norway, isn't that where Tone Matheson's from? Mm -hmm. Hello, Tone Matheson. I'm pretty sure in Norway they've switched off the analog radio altogether. Here we don't have any. They did a digital trial for a while using digital audio broadcasting, DAB+. And then Radio New Zealand said, that's our public broadcaster. They said, yeah, you know, we we don't mind either way whether we go ahead with this. The commercial broadcasters didn't want it because they perceived the possibility of further competition. So the government closed down the digital audio broadcasting trial. Now, where I'm going with this is that that means there's a scarcity of frequencies. And the other day, our public broadcaster said they were going to 
take away the FM frequencies for the fine music station, which plays predominantly classical music, but also jazz. It's been around since 1933, although not on FM. When I was a kid, it used to be on the YC stations, they were called, and there was kind of this hierarchy, this pecking order. So if Parliament was sitting, they had to broadcast that, because the law says that all parliamentary proceedings have to be broadcast. And then, if there was sport on, they had to broadcast that. <laughs> and finally, if there was nothing else to do, they'd play the classical music. Well, eventually they got their own FM frequency, and classical music is much better on FM anyway. Now they want to start a new youth channel. And I mean, we've got squillions of youth radio stations in New Zealand, run by commercial entities. Uh, and they're going to put the classical music back on AM, on those old frequencies, when the time permits. It will be streaming still. And you'll be able to hear it on Freeview and things. But as you can appreciate, the classical music fans are understandably livid. And it's not just that they're changing frequency. They're really hacking into the resources allocated to this network, which have been quite considerable because they've, they've been recording orchestral concerts and different things like that. So there's a huge controversy. There's a big petition that's been launched now. Save RNZ. Yeah, it's got over 5,000 cities. Interesting. I think it's kind of silly to have a youth station when most youth don't listen to the radio. That's the thing. If there's a scarcity of frequencies, why would you, with all due respect, waste an FM frequency on young people? Because they're going to be listening on their smartphones and smart mm-hmm. devices. And yeah. how many people are going to be, how many young people listen to FM radio anymore? How many know what a radio is? There you go. Yeah. I mean, someone said, you know, maybe they could flick it in their car, but I don't even know if they listen in their car. Yeah, Richard said to us they they might channel surf and find it in the car. But a lot of people have CarPlay or adapters that play play their own playlists. um, The the, the reality is that the RNZ concert listeners, a lot of those are older people who might not have access to any streaming technology at all. And for many of them, it's kind of a lifeline. Mm -hmm. And there are no classical stations in New Zealand other than this one. Yeah. It's really going to create quite a controversy. So we'll just have to see how it goes. And these people, these concert listeners, they're articulate. They're generally well-connected. They're not hesitant about Mm. writing a letter to politicians or whoever. They will gladly have public meetings where they will speak most eruditely about the erosion, the dumbing down of culture in New Zealand. Well, well, there was a well-known opera singer who was very upset. Yes, Dame Kitty Takanawa, who many people may remember, sang at Princess Charles and Prince Diana's wedding <laughs> back Princess in 1981. <laughs> yeah. So uh, she, she, she's very upset about it as well. So this one is not going to go away. And then there's Iowa. It's silly. Well, Mayor Pete won, so that's the most important thing. Mayor Pete, I wonder how long it's going to take until Apple pronounces Buttigieg. My iPhone, with Daniel on it, it pronounce it sounds like it's saying butter geek. It butter really geek, does. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like it's saying butter geek. The debacle that is Iowa is just incredible. So they had this app and people were supposed to uh, send in their results with the app. But apparently a lot of people weren't given training in it and it was distributed essentially as a test flight type build. So it wasn't distributed through any official channels. And then on top of that, word is coming through now that uh, people who were up to no good were actually deliberately jamming the Plan B, which was the phone line Mm -hmm. that um, people could use if they couldn't get the app to work. So there were people jamming that. Now, that happened in 2002 in New Hampshire. 
people got into trouble for that, so I suspect we haven't heard the last of the jamming of the phone lines in Iowa, which does make me think, I, I long for the days of the Iowa scream. You know something? Yeah. You know something? If you had told us one year ago that we were going to come in third in Iowa, we would have given anything for that. And you know something? You know something? Not only are we going to New Hampshire, Tom Harkin, we're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. We will not give up. We will not give up in New Hampshire. We will not give up in South Carolina. Easy, easy, Howard. We will not give up easy. in Arizona or New Mexico, uh, 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 yeah, Oklahoma, yeah. North Dakota, yeah. Delaware, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pennsylvania, yeah, we, we, we got it, Ohio, yeah, we got it, Howard. Michigan. Yeah. We yeah. will not quit now or ever. We want our country no. back for ordinary Americans. Yeah, we, we will not quit now or ever, which means that even now in 2020, Howard Dean is still campaigning for the 2004 hmm. election for, for the nomination. God, give us another scream, Howard. Yeah, yeah good on you. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one more time. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's happened to Wire? I mean, there have been some great Iowa moments in 2008, of course. Oh, so in 2004, we had that Howard Dean thing. And then in 2008, we had Barack Obama winning Iowa, and that was amazing. And what happened in 2012? Well, Obama won Iowa again, but we had uh, – we had, nothing much happened in Iowa in 2012 except that Paul uh, – what was his name? Um, Rick Santorum won in mm-hmm. 2012. And then – who won in 2016? Oh, it was, it was Ted Cruz, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Anyway, you have to wonder whether the whole Iowa caucus being the first in the nation thing. Well, they think they may get rid of it. Yeah. Ah! Should we go through some email? Okay. We can get your response. Here's here's the incredible Nikki Keck. I have not felt ready yet to spend the money for Castro, so I'm still using Overcast. I noted with excitement that you said the update had come out where one could skip intros in Overcast, so I made sure I had the most up-to-date version on my iDevices. However, I have searched high and low for this setting to skip intros and or outros, and I cannot find it anywhere. Any idea where the setting is located? Thanks, and as always, enjoying the show. Well, I actually have now deleted Overcast altogether, but when I had the better of it, you had to go into the podcast setting for each individual podcast. It was in the podcast specific settings because obviously uh, you have to define how much of each podcast to skip. So, for example, with the Archers, I went into the Archers podcast and I um, looked at when the theme stopped playing of the Archers. And then I would look at the time and then I tell Overcast to skip that many seconds in the uh, settings with that podcast. And in fact, that is what I have done for the Archers on Castro as well. So I hope that points you in the right direction, Nikki. We also have an email from Francisco Crespo, who is in Argentina, as I remember. Mm-hmm. And he says, hello, Jonathan. 
As you bring up the discussion of wallet and payment methods, I would like to encourage everyone to try Cash Reader, a money reader app that works with more than 50 currencies around the world, including the NZ dollar. Yes, Mm -hmm. it works with the NZ dollar because I kept seeing every update that would come out. And they said, we're now supporting all sorts of funky currencies, which is great. And the New Zealand dollar was never there. So I wrote to them and I said, oi, when are you going to support the New Zealand dollar then? And um, finally, they did get it added um, since I was requesting it. So good on them for doing that. It's a great app. Francisco says it is available in both iOS and Android, and it can read banknotes even if they are folded in two parts. I work with the developer doing the Spanish translation and providing support in Latin America and can tell you of their commitment to keeping updating Cash Reader and including more currencies, even if they don't make a good revenue out of their inclusion. The app has a 14-day trial. I am sending you a promo code. Oh, well, so that you can get a lifetime license. Well, thank you, Francisco, actually. So I actually have bought the app. We might give that away. If you would like to go into the drawing, just send a blank email if you want with cash reader in the subject line to jonathan at mushroomfm.com. So just an email with cash reader in the subject line to jonathan at mushroomfm.com. And we'll leave that open for a week. And next week, we will draw a lucky winner and send them the promo code. Here is one from John Diakodjian. Georgia, he says, I really enjoyed your podcast on Castro. The app is really good as long as you pay for it. <laughs> yeah, they do have a free version, but yeah, the, 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 the good stuff is in the paid. For example, I tried importing my podcasts before I subscribed and was not able to. There are two things, though, that Downcast does better. The first, he says, is that it does a better job of suggesting podcasts. Yes, I probably wouldn't argue with that. The second, it is very easy to unsubscribe from a podcast. I still haven't figured out how to do this in Castro. I must say, I love the inbox in Castro. Thanks for reviewing it. Um, John, thank you. And it's uh, pretty easy to unsubscribe from a podcast in Castro. All you do is go into the library, double tap the podcast from which you wish to unsubscribe, double tap settings, and then at the end of the settings screen is unsubscribe. How are you getting on with Castro another weekend, Good. Bonnie? I put a bunch of stuff in the queue last night and went to sleep in the queue all night. <laughs> yeah. so that was kind of cool. Very good. Do you use screen time? Yeah. What do you use it for? It just tells me what my screen time is. Okay, so you don't sort of restrict yourself no. for it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I switched it off, but here's Kelby Carlson. Kelby Carlson! Hi, Kelby. And um, so I don't use screen time at all. I switched it off as soon as I finished writing iOS 12 without the eye. So somebody else might chime in or several others might chime in with this question that Kelby has. He says, I have a question about using the screen time feature on the iPhone. I have tried to set up Safari to have a time limit via screen time so that I don't waste too much time on the web. The time limit doesn't seem to work, though. And when I go into screen time and check by app, almost all of my time is listed under other. Do you have any idea what the problem could be? 
I don't, Kelby. Um, I guess I just sort of find that a little bit kind of like nanny iPhone trying to tell me what to do. So I have it switched off and just sort of manage my own thing. Yeah. But perhaps um, somebody else, Someone else might. might know. Marianne Mendes about the notification thing. She says, notification bug, being away from my phone and listening with my Bluetooth speaker and then repeatedly getting the notification, party popper, party popper, hands raised in celebration, your Instacart order will arrive, clapping hands, clapping hands, mm. party popper. <laughs> and it repeats every minute, yeah. every minute. It's kind of annoying. What about your ringtones? They're pretty generic. I don't actually have any that are specific. I had, you know, a couple that you had created for me, the call to the post. And oh, the yeah, Xbox. that's right. So then so yeah. after I created the William Tell overture for your ringtone on my phone, there's a clip with a squeaky donkey. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we made one for you, the call to the post. Why did you stop using that? It went the... away. It's not in my phone anymore. Oh, so you've got the same thing as Marianne had where yeah. you – had ringtones and then you upgraded yeah, in the ringtone. It, it, yeah, it went away. Yeah. Oh. Our guide dog trainer at work has a text tone that's a squeaky toy. And every time it goes off, I, well, for a while, every time it go off, I thought it was Eclipse. <laughs> that's a good idea. Squeaky toy, yeah. <laughs> that's a good idea because it does give you a bit of personality, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I should get some for mine. We should try and get your call to the post back. Yeah, it's quite uh, jarring when it goes off. We actually, did we use it as a ringtone or your alarm tone? I think we used it, it as alarm your alarm. Tone, but it I could think. be a ringtone. It could too. be a ringtone. Yeah. yeah. But I think you had it as your alarm. So, because I do remember you had it when when you moved here and uh, every morning it would go. Mm-hmm. Oh my yeah. goodness, what a way to wake <laughs> up. Mosin at Large Podcast. Microsoft Power Toys. If you go back far enough, you will remember these, and they were very popular. They were a big thing back in 95 and 98 days especially, and you could just go and do some really geeky, tweaky things. My geeky, tweaky computer. Yeah, with Microsoft Power Toys. And they're making a comeback. Not quite the same as they used to be, but there's a series of Microsoft Power Toy utilities that are being released. Some of them have already come out and some of them will be out very shortly. There is a new Microsoft Power Toy that's about to be released and it's called Keyboard Shortcut Manager. Now, one of the functions of this is available in other apps already. For example, many people use a tool called Sharp Keys and you use this to remap, usually say if you've got a laptop that doesn't have an application key, sometimes people get sharp keys and it creates a little registry hack that turns, say, the right alt key or the right control key into an application key. There's all sorts of use cases for things like sharp keys. And there are others that do it as well. I believe there is a Windows version of Carabina as well. So that is not particularly new. But here's the cool thing. You can also change or even disable Windows shortcuts that you don't use. So that potentially frees up a lot of keys for screen reader use. I use Osara in Reaper, for example, and Reaper is absolutely packed 
with keyboard shortcuts. And there are certain functions that I have mapped to keys in Reaper, but I've had to use some really obscure ones like Control Alt Shift F11 because there really is a shortage of of good available keys. But with this new power toy that is coming out very shortly, you will be able to turn some of those Windows shortcuts off and get some Windows key functions back. You could even say change the Windows R run key to Windows Y, for example. I don't know why you would, but you can. So it sounds like a powerful little thing. It's going to be called Keyboard Shortcut Manager. It's in the Microsoft Power Tools suite, and it's due for release quite soon. So I'll try and keep an eye on this. And if I find out that it's been released, I'll let you know how it goes. Perhaps we'll do a quick demo of this. But it sounds very promising indeed. Now, I see that the Amazon Echo Show has added the ability to scan barcodes on packages so they can be added to your shopping list. Wonder how this is working. Are you using an Amazon Echo Show? I know we have a lot of people who have various soup drinker devices listening to this. And that when the Echo Show came out originally, there were some problems with it. Some people said there were some accessibility issues. So I'm wondering if they've been resolved. Do you, as a blind person, find value in the Amazon Echo Show? And if so, what do you use it for? I'd be really interested in this because the Amazon Echo Show is now officially available in New Zealand. We have a Ring video doorbell, and I know that there is integration between the Amazon Echo Show and the Ring video doorbell, so it interests me from that point of view. So if you use one, what do you think? Is it worth it from a blind person's point of view? In other tech news I wanted to mention this week, who would want to be the person who at Microsoft did the equivalent of forgetting to put money in the parking meter? For some people, particularly I think in the United States, in the North America area, Microsoft Teams was down earlier this week for nearly three hours and they were going looking for the cause and everything. And it turned it turned out that Microsoft forgot to renew a critical security certificate. So users of Microsoft's Slack competitor were met with an error message that said that it was attempting to sign into the service. This was back on Monday morning. And the app noted that it had failed to establish an HTTPS connection to Microsoft service. It's a pretty competitive space. Microsoft's coming in as the challenger, the newcomer. Slack is everywhere. So a little kerfuffle like this is not what Microsoft would have wanted, but it just goes to show, you know, some poor human somewhere just overlooked the renewal of a certificate. Next thing you know, boom, lots of people can't communicate with each other. And a response to my question about the Echo Show. Thank you, Nikki, in sunny Florida. She says, we had an Echo Show and sold it to our sighted cleaning person. Maybe you could have given it in exchange for free cleaning. You know, this Echo Show awards us three weeks of free cleaning. We found, she says, that stereo pairing the Gen 3 dots sounded better, and we just didn't think the show was as responsive 
to our voices. She says this is the Echo Show 5 and not the original Echo Show. We've got that here in New Zealand, and I see the Echo Show 8 is going on sale later this month in New Zealand as well. I did want to mention a couple of apps that I've been playing with, maybe even three. The first one is one that I came across in a newsletter that I read, and I thought that it could have a lot of potential, particularly if you work in the blindness rehabilitation field. You may be really interested in this for some of your clients. The app is called When Did I? And it essentially turns the task manager paradigm on its head. So with a task manager, you make a list of things that you have to do, and then you mark them off when you've done them. Now I find myself using the Apple Reminders app and I'm into that ecosystem and I really like it a lot. When did I, on the other hand, let you log when you last did something? This could be useful for changing the batteries in your smoke detector or if you have an air conditioning unit that requires you to clean the filters and you're supposed to to do that every month or so, you can check when you last did it as long as you log, of course, when you last did it. So it could be used in tandem with a reminder app, but it could also be used, say, for older people. And of course, the majority of people who become blind are older, who may need to lo- to take medication, do various things like that, and log when they did it. The only downside is it's usable right now, but I wouldn't call it 100% accessible. It's got some accessibility quirks. And so I wrote to the developer and explained the use case that I actually think it also has some serious shortcuts as well that you can program. And I indicated that if they could just tidy it up a little bit with accessibility, I think this could have a lot of benefit for many people and Her name's Heidi. I remember that because my daughter's called Heidi. And um, she was very receptive and said she would definitely uh, take a look at this and see what could be done. So this app is called When Did I? And I'll put a link in the uh, podcast show notes and it's available in the app store as well. Another new app or updated app I wanted to talk about was Fantastical. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Fantastical. I've been using this as my go-to calendar app on my iPhone since, gosh, I believe about 2013, a long time. Certainly the the majority of my iPhone use has been with Fantastical as my calendar app. One of the really nice things about it is that you can enter appointments in natural language. So it's very efficient, especially if you're good with Braille screen input. You can really get quite complex appointments, recurring appointments in with natural language. The new version of Fantastical is version 3, and they've moved to a subscription model, but they've endeavored to be as fair as possible, because when apps move from a one-off payment to subscription, it's always really controversial. So what they've done is made sure that everybody who bought Fantastical version 2 has all the version 2 features, plus a couple of new ones. In version 3, you can now log in with all your calendar accounts separate from just hooking into the iCloud calendar ecosystem. It has a wonderful feature that works with any calendar for proposing multiple times and essentially automating the getting together of a group who need to go back and forth over what time they're available. It's really very cool. Weather forecasts are built in if you want to know what it's like to travel to a particular appointment. There are a lot of good features. Now, when version three came out, there were one or two accessibility bugs. And that did surprise me because 
Flexibits, who make the Fantastic Owl app, have an amazing track record. They also do an app called Card Hop, which is a brilliant replacement for the Apple Contacts app. That's also 100% accessible. It's just incredible what you can do with that once you understand the, the syntax. And um, they responded very quickly to people's reports of accessibility bugs within, I think, about 48 hours of people reporting the accessibility bugs, they came out with a 3.01 release that fixed most of them. And that is really good going. I mean, they must have been under a lot of pressure with such a big update. So I highly recommend Fantastical if you work a lot with appointments. You know, if you don't, um, you may not find the subscription worth your while, although you can still do a lot with the free version. If you work in an office situation, you work with an exchange calendar or a Office 365 calendar or a G Suite calendar, uh, it might be worth taking a look at this. And you can trial it in its full form and see whether it's for you before committing to the subscription. When we spoke with Lee, you'll notice that there was there were no artifacts there. No artifacts uh, that you often get with Skype or Zoom. The way that people consider the gold standard of podcast recording should work when you're doing remote interviews is you ask the other person to make a remote recording for you. You record your end, they record their end, and then they give you a copy of the WAV file or maybe a high bitrate MP3 file, and you as the podcast producer mix them together. That's a little bit difficult for some people who don't have recording software on their computer. And, you know, there are various other packages you can use that give much better audio quality than Skype or Zoom, but they require a bit of geekdom to get going. I'm thinking of Team Talk, for example, as one, where if you're going to be podcasting with the same people, you could certainly get up and running with Team Talk and get all that set up, but it's not the kind of thing that you would give to a computer novice guest. The system that we were using for that interview was called Squadcast. It's accessible but quirky. Not the most intuitive thing from a screen reader's point of view, but it's doable. And the way Squadcast works, and there are several services like this, is that you send somebody a link, which the service generates. You click the link, and then you are placed in a chat room, a voice chat room. You have to use Google Chrome with this. And you can hear each other kind of like a Skype or Zoom conversation with similar quality. So all, all somebody's done is, is click the link. And then they've gone to the page and Google Chrome says, if you go there for the first time, Squadcast wants permission to use your mic. Is this OK? And you say, yes, it is. That's just the first time you go. And that's all that the guest has to do. On the host side, there's a record button. And this is the cool bit. When you press record as the podcast host, it records both ends of the conversation locally. So it makes a local recording of your guest or guests. You can have multiple guests. And it makes a local recording of you. When you finish the interview, you can download all of those local recordings as WAV files because they get uploaded to a central point. They're then separate tracks, which means that you can put them into Reaper or your multi-track editor of choice and EQ them and mix them and pan them and all that sort of stuff without any of the audio processing glitches, blemishes that you get with services like Skype or Zoom. It is genius. Now, there are other ones that I've tried in this space. None are as reliable that I've tried as Squadcast. 
So if you do make podcasts or you're ever in a situation where you want to record local audio from multiple people and mix it together, check out squadcast.fm, squadcast.fm. It's a really cool setup. And they have become a lot more accessible in recent times. I wrote to them, letting them know a couple of accessibility anomalies. And to my great delight, they fix them and they keep checking back in with me to find out how they're doing from an accessibility perspective. So it's a fantastic tool, squadcast.fm. Petra has chimed in on the subject of the Echo Show. My daughter and a neighbor have Echo Shows, and so do I. They're good if you know other people who have them because they can actually see you. My daughter has been able to tell me what kind of cheese I'm holding or how my hair looks. I'm sure it always looks marvellous, Petra. Be My Eyes and Ira are great, but it's so much easier to say, soup drinker, call Tammy as I walk into the room. Be My Eyes sometimes doesn't connect to a volunteer quickly. That really is a very good idea. Maybe Ira should consider diversifying and getting onto the Echo Show. I wonder if the camera is considered adequate. Good thought. Thank you, Petra. That wraps up another bumper edition of Mosin at Large. Thanks to all your contributions. You can make one by dropping me an email to Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com with an audio contribution or a written email. And you can call the listener line on 864-60-MOSIN. Mosin at Large.